Welcome back to another, well, this is going to be a, a gut-wrenching episode, I think, of Traumatically Triumphant, I think. I mean, it's a pro- harrowing, intense. Gut-wrenching. I don't know what kind of stuff you think we're talking about. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, uh, I was going to say I was going to say uplifting and well, encouraging. Well, you got to you got to yeah. hit the gut first and then we will then we will uplift and encourage. But yes, you're right. Welcome Eric Ade. Good to have you on Traumatically Triumphant. Traumatically Triumphant. Is this is your second episode? Well, no. This we we've, we've recorded a whole bunch. We've we released our first this week, and then we we have a bunch set up to to be released. How many so, have you? How many have you done so far? Uh, this is my sixth or seventh. All right. Yeah. What made you want to start doing this? Oh, um, Eric's already flipping the script. Um, uh, actually, good question. So we are quarantined. I'm also a filmmaker, um, and. I was feeling like with what's going on in the world, we are all like fighting about stuff that I don't think, no one's really interested in people's opinions, but we're letting these opinions divide us when they really like we're all human beings. And for me in my life, trauma has been a source of like connection with other people. Um, I don't know if you know this about me, my, my brother passed away when I was a teenager it was, you know, of cancer. And then from that death really like punctuated my life in weird, weird ways. Um, to the point where that started just becoming something that like either I gravitated towards it or it gravitated towards me. And as a storyteller from like being this, this high, I felt like, Oh, this is something I can continue to do during this time. Keep telling stories that are great, but also like show that no matter who you are, what you went through, you could go through really difficult shit and you could bring yourself up, but also bring others up because of the challenge that you went through that you otherwise wouldn't have maybe necessarily had to go, you know, and you don't want other people to have to go through it. So you want to teach them and help them and, and you know, give them the guidepost before they hit it. How old were you when your brother died? Uh, I had just turned 15. What was what was the major change between your brother dying and after? Oh, good question. Um, for me, it was realizing that some people choose, you know, to live a certain way or choose when they end their life, and some people don't. And for the people who don't, whether it's through a tsunami or a sickness or a murder or whatever, like you as a human being owe it to those people who you consider so important to you to actually bring your fullest life into this world while you have it. And to make a choice against that is kind of like disgracing what you loved about the person who you lost to begin with, or what you didn't know about the tens of thousands of people who got lost in some horrible, you know, natural disaster or whatever, you know, whatever it may be. So, you know, bringing an appreciation to the moment and, 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 and the human connection. Who were the people in your life that, 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 that was your goal with? That you wanted to uh, stick around for and, and and still be positive in, in, in some sense. Well, now I mean, I, I've always, for me, even since I was little, I've always wanted to to make movies and and be in that world. I didn't understand necessarily what a director was or a producer or that, but that was always my vision. So to me, it was telling stories. It was always like bringing people together, uniting them, and then watching something that 
like I'm bringing together. And your your brother's death inspired you to do this? Or? Well, I kicked it into high gear. I wrote, I ended up writing an article about it that I got a scholarship for. It was published internationally. Um, and then I realized that like, oh, people will read what I write. They might get inspiration from it. Um, and then this fits into what I want to do, which is how this podcast also came about, you know? So, um, yeah. But you are our guest today, Eric. Uh, well, I mean, well, let's we'll we'll, 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 we'll keep some of it for later. So let, tell me a little bit about yourself. So where, where are you, uh, where are you from? Where were you born? I was born here in LA at Cedars. Um, oh, yeah. uh, so I've been here most of my, most of my life. Uh, uh, yeah, pretty much my whole life. I'm right down the street, like 15 minutes from here, I guess. Okay. Oh, great. And so you, but you didn't go to school or you didn't go to high school in, in LA. Uh, in LA, proper? no, no I, I moved to, when I was eight years old, I moved to the Antelope Valley, which is about 60 miles north of uh, L.A. Right. And I went to a couple of high schools up there. I was a bit of a, I guess, I mean, in this day and age, I was, I was probably, probably could be considered a saint. But back in the day, I was considered a troublemaker because I had a sense of humor. I was sarcastic. Um, I was uh, uh, quick-lipped. Uh, but... Also, I mean, I have a, I have a, I have a, my history starts really, well, yeah, yeah. um, see, I'm the youngest of six boys, yet all my brothers consider me their older brother. Okay. Uh, and it'll make sense in a second, but, um, when I was eight years old, I was run over by a school bus. Yeah. So I, so I wanted, I wanted to, I wanted to start that because that's probably first moment of extreme trauma. Would that be considered that? Uh, well... Yeah, I mean, yeah. How yeah. how did that happen? Like, because I remember you telling me that I was like, "What the hell? Like, how does how does a kid get?" We up? we had a substitute. Like, we were in a new housing track up in the Antelope Valley, and it was on Owen Thirtieth, and we were literally there was like only two streets of houses. Like, I remember my family was the first first family to move into this new housing track, and then the next day there was another family and another family, and they just started as the houses got built, families would move in, but our uh, our um, bus stop because it was so far out there away from the school our bus was the first one to be picked up and the last one to be dropped off mm -hmm. and the thing that sucked about it was it wasn't for, to our elementary school we would have to they would pick up all the uh, junior high kids and then all the elementary school kids drop off all the junior high kids first and then all the elementary school kids so and then when it would start off the other way we would go to the uh, elementary school they drop off all the elementary school kids first then we'd have to transfer to a bus at the junior high school and then they would drop off all the other junior high school so we were the last stop of two different schools wow. okay and so we were on the bus and th this is what's this <laughs> like is like half the day this is what sucks and like honestly like three hours you know and Jeez, and, and a and, long time it's a long time and now here's the funny thing about it is if my mother wasn't lazy she could have just gone down the street like four miles and picked us up and it would have been faster for us just to walk home but right. we're kids we can't do that yeah. So we would be on the bus three hours going to school and coming back from school. So it was a six-hour round trip. It, it, it's fucking ridiculous. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, and not not just that, but our housing track wasn't near the road. Our housing track was like in the middle, middle, middle of the desert. So we would have to walk almost three-quarters of a mile just to get to the fucking bus stop. Okay. All right, so that's so, yeah, it's a, yeah, that's how it starts off. Right. My um, we the, the, this one particular day. We had a substitute bus driver and the substitute, we were the last stop of the day. The substitute bus driver gets us there. And I'm, even though I'm the youngest, I'm like, I'm in, I'm in third grade at the time. And we had a bunch of junior hires with us and, and everything mm -hmm. else. Cause we're the, 
I was trying to convince the substitute bus driver that our real bus stop is closer to our houses, which is you have to drive down this long road and then figure and then figure out a way to turn the bus around and come back. That's why they couldn't drive that bus down there because there was no <laughs> there was only one way in. Even now there's a bunch of different ways right. in because they built a bunch of new roads. But there's only one road in and they would have had to figure out how to turn around. A lot of kids were actually jumping on the bandwagon. We're like, yes, our real bus stop is down the street here. And this uh, lady was about to do it until this one girl got off the bus. Like, she couldn't keep the lie up. And she's, she's like, is this really, do I really go down the street? And then the girl got off the bus and started walking away. I stayed on the bus as long as possible, trying to convince this woman that we're supposed to go back. Like, I, <laughs> I, sh I wish I let it go. I wish I let it go. Yeah. She closes the bus and like a dipshit, I don't know what, I don't know what I was thinking, but... I saw an open window and I jumped up to pull myself up to start yelling in the open window. And as I'm pulling myself up and yelling in, she takes off with me hanging on the side of the bus. Wow. You know, like I'm, 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 I, I was eight years old when this happened. Yeah. So do I know, should I have known better? God, I mean, now I wish I did, but I didn't know she was going to take off with me hanging on the side of yeah, the bus. Yeah, yeah. And I fell down and rolled underneath the bus and the bus ran me over my pelvis. Um, I hit my, uh, my, my uh. literally, I, th I thought I shit my pants. I thought I shit my pants and it was, I got put, I got squeezed. Way, way worse than that. I got squeezed like a tomato. Yeah. And all the kids, I remember this girl, Toby, she was an eighth grader. Like I was, I remember I had the biggest crush on her and she comes over and she's like, Eric, are you okay? And I go, I, I think I'm going to die. <laughs> and she started Jeez. laughing and then I started laughing and it hurt so much to laugh. Oh God. But that yeah. was, everyone thought I was just kidding. So kids, kids were like trying to pull me up and everything. And when uh, they realized this is this is real, the bus driver came back and took off. She fucking took off. Uh, you would think like I would, I would have a slam dunk case here, right? You know, like a hit and run. The girl's not uh, not uh, qualified. They they they're hiring people who who shouldn't be driving buses, kind of stuff. No, I lost the lawsuit. Because you were. You shouldn't have been jumping, or or just because. Uh, I guess, yeah. They they, yeah. they said that I jumped on. They said I jumped on the bus, uh, and the, while it was moving, when I, I that wasn't true at all. Right. Um, but yeah, they yeah. they they, oh, they, they said, well, if he didn't jump on the bus, this would never have happened. And I'm like, well, if she had cleared it, if, if I'm an adult and I know better, right. if my kid gets run over by a school bus by a substitute bus driver who didn't clear the bus, yeah, I'd be like, uh, you need to clear the bus. Make sure the kids are away. Because so kids how are long, assholes. How long until you could walk again? Two years. I was in and out of hospitals for two years. I uh, wasn't supposed to live through that night. I wasn't supposed to live through the week. Yeah, I uh, mean, that's... And then, and then it was just, I was in more pain than anything. And pain to this day from the bus accident. And, I mean, uh, it, it, everyone, when people ask me, hey, w what's the worst thing that's ever happened to you? They assume it's Pakistan. I go, no, 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 Pakistan was easy. I said it was a bus accident. Bus accident was the, what was hard. Well, I... I'm, I'm, I can't really argue with what you say because you could say Pakistan is easy. I can't imagine that it's easy. We're going to get to that part soon. But, um, oh, geez. Well, if Pakistan is easy, then that must have been insane. I mean, yeah, no. It, it, well, because I, I was, can't imagine. You were so little. And I, I was, the tire is like half your size. No, and it was just, you know, each side has two tires on it. So it wasn't, right, it's yeah. not just one tire. Right, it's a it's, double. It's, oh. it's four tires the total just in the back. So there's two tires on the sides. Yeah. And those ran me over. Um and I was, you know, I was just in constant pain. I had over 50 surgeries between the age of 8 and 15. I'm the first person on earth to have their urethra severed and reconnected. Uh, everything that they were learning from me as it was experimental. Are you in Guinness for that? I'm in doctor's history books. I don't know. Ah, yeah, there you go. I, was, okay. I'm not, I don't know. I don't think I'm in Guinness. I don't think it's, I don't think it's a record. I just. In the, <laughs> in the penis Guinness. 
<laughs> Come on, we gotta have a little fun here. Okay, so but well, what I think is also amazing, which I know you're you're leading up to, is this is not something that stopped Eric Auday. Um, in fact, you wanted to play sports after this, which is kind of unthinkable to most people who get their pelvis run over. I was told I'd never walk again. Right. I was told I'd never run again. I was told I'd never do anything normal again. But I didn't care. I was doing it anyways. Yeah. And that's how I felt. It's long. I remember the first day I was a. Uh, uh, I was, the, the doctor says to me, Eric, I'm sorry to tell you that you're never going to walk again. I literally stood up out of the wheelchair. I was like, why? I can stand up. I can do this. Mm. And he was like, no, 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 sit down. Ah. Yeah. And I had a big colostomy bag. I had a catheter and all this. And I was just had tubes in and out of me. It was, mm. um, and the pain was just so excruciating. They kept trying to pit put me full of painkillers and then my body became used to it. So I became a drug addict as a, as an eight year old. Because I became so addicted to painkillers, and they they started to stop working for me. Um, the hospitals stopped giving me painkillers because I was addicted to them, and because they weren't working. Um, wow. Uh, so the early days yeah. were the worst by by far. I mean, I don't miss those whatsoever. Yeah, and that sucks. I mean, and I guess this is like a kind of a random question. After that, is did you have friends in those two years? You know what I mean? Because it's like you're so young that once you're out of the picture, they can't drive to you. They can't like, well, they you know. Never, they never could drive to then either. They were eight. Right. That's what I'm. <laughs> no, that's what I'm saying. They're they're too young to be able to come see you on their own. And so you're like you're not playing with them every day. And at eight years old, there's not much else to do. The new housing track we were at was so small and isolated. There were other kids, and we would you know we used to play games like hide and go seek and add on tag and mm -hmm. but we we weren't close in any way. Right. I had a, one older brother that stayed with me, even though I'm the youngest of six a total. Um, I had one older brother that lived with me for a little bit, but he ended up just moving with my, with our dad, and mm -hmm. I, I didn't see him very much either. But no, my my childhood was basically spent uh, in a lot of pain in a in a bed or in a wheelchair, and up in my room. So how did you? How did you uh, prove the doctors wrong? Because I, I, I've, you know, watching your documentary, which again we're going to talk to you soon. Um, there's mentions of what I see of you. You kind of have like the that like martial arts or that sort of like committed mentality where you're like, now I want to do this task, so I'm going to commit myself to you know like withholding your breath, which you know well, that's, stuff like that. So did, that's years later right, stuff. So I mean. so how did but how did you prove the doctors wrong at such a young age and say, well, no, I'm going to Get up. It's because I was so young and I was still growing is the okay. only reason why I was able to heal. Right. Had I been older, had I even been like a couple of years older, it would have been... To... It, it, probably, yeah. it probably would never have happened. Uh, I think I would have been in a wheelchair the rest of my life. Yeah. And so sure. it was because I was still growing that I was able to heal from from, from everything that had happened to me. Um, so that, that was a, you know, it was a blessing. Right. All, all, it, all it ensured was that everything I was going to do was going to be not easy. You know, people who walk and ride a bike and get to go outside and swim in the pool, I didn't get to experience that stuff. I I, right. I had to I had to <laughs> I didn't know what it was like to just suffer every fucking day. And yeah. and and it wasn't just suffering. Like I remember I would I would wake up with these with these cramps in, in my um in like my kidney areas where they were it just felt like nails and broken glass inside me. Um and that would become the new norm. And I would start screaming all hours of the night. And my mom's boyfriend would come in like, he's tired. I could see he can't stay awake. And he'd start playing Zelda on the Nintendo next to my bed. And he was, all he could do was just be there until these episodes would, would, yeah. would go by. And I always felt like such a nuisance on everyone because they can't do anything for me. Yeah. So, so I would learn to scream in silence. I would learn to, to just take the pain. And these, these things, like since I've been sitting here with you, I've had two of them already. 
Right. And, and I'm not screaming anymore. No, no, no. Yeah. You're, but I always go through your... it. It's it's as if I got a bag of glass that just kind of like swims around inside me. And I don't know what, you know, there's nothing I can do. The doctors are like, you know, this is just this is the new norm. We could try to do this and try right. to do that. And I'm like, no, I don't want to. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Well, but it ultimately didn't hold you back from accomplishing like at least your goals in high school. I mean, did you have a goal to set a record? Or, I know you did set a record. I never had a goal to set a record. That just happened. That just everything kind of happened. I had a okay. I had a smothering mother who was never uh, never wanted me home alone because okay. I would always try to throw parties or I would do something wrong, like uh, yeah. shoot fire firecrackers off the roof, and yeah. the neighbors are always complaining. Um, so she never left me home alone. So and I was. When I was 14, uh, she was taking college classes at the local college up there, mm -hmm. and she made me go to the college with her. And she says, either you can sit in my class or you can take some classes on your own. I didn't want to sit with my mom. I didn't want to hang out with her. Yeah. So I started taking classes. Like I took football spring uh, spring training. I took uh, uh, football fundamentals with the local college team. And here I was at 14 years old, and I was squirt. You know, they they they, they threw they throw you as a receiver first. When you get there, you know, they, if you don't know what position you want to play or anything, I just knew I wanted to play football and, and exercise. So they put me, you know, they, they threw me in all the drills. And here I was 14, just getting rocked by all these grown men who were from all the, the local high schools up there that wanted to play football still. Um, and I was working out with these guys. Well, then when I would go and play football at the high school, uh, I was I was decent, you know, because right. uh, I was playing with guys who were so much better than everyone. Sophomore year. I just sprouted. I was stronger than anyone at my school, and I was I was already um, I already had a record at the local college for the most dips for my for my my weight my weight range, but they put me on as a starting defensive end, and I'm only 15 years old at the local college. Well, then when college spring ball would would just about to start and hell week would start in high school. I'd say, hey, coaches, I gotta go. They're like, what are you doing? I said, I gotta go back to high school. They're like, you're still in high school, <laughs> so. This would happen. The funniest thing was like by, by my junior year, I'm considered a vet at the junior college, but I'm still in high school. <laughs> so, so you were you were a bit of a man child from, oh, from yeah. an early time. So here, yeah. so when I go, to, I was playing for this school, this really small uh, Christian school up in Lancaster called Bethel Christian, and it wasn't fair that I was playing for this team at right. all. Um, okay, here I was a starter on the local junior college team, and I'm a junior in high school over here. So I just set a complete. I destroyed destroyed the the record. Like I don't even know if the if there was or if there anyone even bothered to keep the record. But it turned out they're like, is, I think that's a record. That was kind of how it came out. And they're like, how many tackles did he have? They had 147 tackles. They're like in a season, like in 11 games, and no. they because our season wasn't as long as a yeah, normal yeah. season, which is 10 season, you know, 10 yeah. games, and then possible four more. Mm -hmm. So. Our playoffs, like we only had a nine-team team season, but we also had something called a mercy rule, which is ridiculous. If we're about, we're for yeah, it. yeah, yeah, that's that's like a little, it's like a little league rule. Like you can't, yeah. you can't destroy them. It, well, if we're ahead by forty-five points after the half, like you can, you can do as many as you want. So if we're ahead by 40, 45 points after the half, the game was over. Hmm. So even though it was eleven total games, we broke it down. It was six games, one quarter that I had one hundred and forty-seven tackles in. Wow! And that was my junior year. Now. Uh, and it's a record I doubt will ever be broken. If it gets broken, I mean that is a lot of freaking tackles. People, people were like, "Were well, you a linebacker?" Or a def I mean, a strong safety. I was like, "No, it's a defensive end." <laughs> so and, you like you like to hit. Uh, my 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 senior year, we destroyed everybody. I I played I played a total like a, I played 
half a season because we we mercy rolled everyone, and I still had over a hundred tackles. And people were like, "Why did you? Uh, what? Why wasn't your rec- or your your stats as good this year?" I was like, "What are you talking about? We annihilated everyone." Less, yeah, you just had half the time. I pl- exactly. <laughs> I played half the time, so it's I did okay. Okay, so so all right, so so first triumph is thank God in this case your body was the thing that helped you heal. And then obviously you you worked out, you worked hard. I mean, that was just hard work and I mean, pl- you determination. It was the plan for the college yeah. and then being able to go back and play for, with high right. schoolers. You know, it was a complete different level of competition. And, and, and probably the fact that you were even, you know, recovered from your injury, you were like, yeah, I'm not scared of these guys. Like... I'm I'm fine. So well, I, uh, th- this is how it is. All right, I'd get in more fights because than anyone. Like in junior high, people, kids are f- awful. Kids are fucking dicks, and everyone <laughs> knew who I was when I went to when I got finally started going back to school. Mm-hmm. Everyone knew me as the kid who got run over by a bus. So they would call me Pancake Boy, and I would get yeah. you know. And, but I would always mouth off because like, yeah. what, what can you do to me? You can't hurt me worse than I've ever been hurt. Right. So I would get my ass beat by all the seventh and eighth graders and. And I would just talk shit while I was getting my ass beat, you know, and and, and that's how it was. Like, uh, people, most people were, I think most people were afraid of getting in a fight because they're afraid of getting hurt. Yeah. But if you can't get hurt, then you're not afraid. Right, yeah. Well, that's a good, that's a good point. Okay, so speaking of not getting hurt, you moved to the, uh, to the industry of getting hurt, Hollywood, and, and you, and you specialize in the part of the industry that, well, hopefully you don't get hurt, but it looks like you do as a stunt, as a stunt man and an actor. Oh, I get jacked up all the time, but it's about minimizing, like, I'd rather get messed up than like royally wrecked. There's, there's a difference. Like you're going to get hurt when you fall on the ground a bunch of times or, or hit a sharp corner or whatever, but it's about being able to do it. You know, as many times as possible and minimize damage, yeah. you know, and do it, you know, as safely as possible, make it look just awful. Right. And so now we get to, well, we'll do our first bump for your documentary now. Now we get to what leads into, I would say, what I have heard is one of the craziest stories I've ever heard in my life, honestly. And I've heard some crazy ones um, that for a guy who was just trying to supplement his income as a as an actor and a stunt guy just doing a, a job, a favor, ended up turning really, 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 whatever direction you want to call it, south, terrible, shitty, you know. So so, so tell us, like, you know, you're, you're, you're doing well, but you start doing this, you start, how old were you But when you started doing these, um, 19, these trips? 19. 19. Yeah. So you moved out to L.A., and how did you, how did you, like, get involved with these people who were like, hey, you should, you should, Going to try. I, I mean, yeah, tell. I, I was, uh, well, I met a girl at, uh, at an audition for the show. Uh, what show was that? I don't know. Some show down in Manhattan Beach. I met this, uh, met this cute little girl, girl that, you know, she's an actress and uh, we started dating and mm-hmm. she lived in Burbank. And I, uh, I, you know, when, you, when, you, when you're young and you're in love and, you know, you want to be with that person as much as possible. Well, I was living at the dorms over at the uh, CSUN with, with my friend. I wasn't even going to college over there. Hmm. I was just living in the dorms. Right. And I wanted to be closer to her because that commute was you know, a little awful. So I moved to Eagle Rock because I wanted to get my own place anyways because it was just a, a summer thing living at the dorms. And I moved to Eagle, Eagle Rock. Um, well, while I was in Eagle Rock, uh, even though I was working you know, on different movies and, st- and shows, it's never full-time. It's never full-time. I was working on all, a, a lot of different TV shows, getting re- re- uh, reoccurring, getting guest stars, but it's never full-time. Yeah. 
So I wanted a consistent job just in case, you know, and my, the job I got was as a nighttime manager at a gym in Burbank called World Gym. And the gym was, the reason why I, I found that gym was because I was dating that girl in Burbank and we walked around the place and everything and I saw the help wanted and, and filled out a thing. Right. So that it was just, you know, because of a girl that was dating in that just city. Just a random, yeah, not. That I got the job in that city. Mm-hmm. And, uh. Uh, it, the nighttime manager position was great because uh, I could still go on auditions during the day. I could still work during the day, and if we're, you know, uh, if I you know got a job, I can get someone to cover for me. But usually, I double dip and I would just work and work, go yeah. back and forth, and it was great. I was getting paid to work out, and I was uh, getting paid to, to to help clients, you know, get in shape. And I was I was a, I was a massive kid, and I was I was I was I was repping four hundred and five pounds. You know, <laughs> I was the guy at the gym who was like, "How'd you get so fucking strong?" And I wasn't, you know, I, was just, I worked out. I had to push myself. Yeah. Um. And one of my clients was a guy, who, a very successful Armenian businessman, the guy who introduced himself as Ray Gazarian. Now. Ray was hiring people at the gym to travel around the world. This is the this is just this is just the very fast crackerjack version of this. Yeah, well, well, that's because they got to watch your documentary. Uh, that's why uh, we, uh, we can't give them everything. Nah, nah, I don't want to give them everything. <laughs> Ray, Ray was hiring people to travel around the world, importing expensive leather goods, and he's paying them for them for it. And uh, to me, as a as a as a as a nineteen year old, that was sounds like a dream job. Sounds like a job, you know, to to be able to. Tra- I mean, I'd been to a couple states. I'd never been out of the country, but to travel around the world and get paid paid for it. Sounds like a, a dream come true. And other people were making these trips. Originally, all the trips were to Turkey, you know, and I'd have guys going there and coming back, and they would pick a, tr- uh, a country to come back through. You'd either come back through Italy, France, uh, Sweden. You know, these were the options. And they were talking about all the girls they were hooking up with and all that stuff. And I was like, man, when you're a horny teenager, man, it sounds yeah. kind, of, kind of amazing. Um, well, it wasn't, I'd want to go on, I, I'd, I'd wanted to go on these trips since the beginning. But uh, my girlfriend had more sense than I did, and she was like, "You're an idiot if you go." Like they thought that uh, what we what we were we, we what we'd be doing because it was a because Turkey is is a Muslim country, and what back in the day people think Muslim country oh they're gonna you know chop off your heads. I think adventure. That's not how I think. Right, I, you were just thinking it's a big country, something new. I thought yeah, it's cool to go to, go someplace new and try and something paid. new. Exactly. Yeah. I don't look at it as oh, it's a bad place. No, I look at it as a, Turkey's a beautiful country by the way. Yeah, it, Istanbul it, is like supposed to be one of the greatest cities it is. like on the planet. So it, yeah. It's if you can go, I tell everyone you should absolutely go. Um well, sh- I didn't go at the, when we were together because, you know, she was like riding me how you know, she didn't mm-hmm. want she didn't want me to go. Well, then we broke up. And the second we broke up, the second we broke up, my boy Ray's like, he knew, because we were like best friends at this time. Mm-hmm. He knew that something was wrong by my demeanor. And he says, Eric, you know, I tell my girl and I broke up. He's like, you need to do go on a trip for me. Literally like that. Mm. And a week later, I was on my first trip to Turkey. And I had the, the best time ever. I came, went to Turkey. I came back through Sweden. And I was, got Sweden is gorgeous. Yeah. The girls in Sweden, <laughs> blonde, blue eyed. Man, if you go to Sweden and you go into any Burger King or 7-Eleven, you're going to see some beautiful women working there. It's, it's, <laughs> everyone is a 10. Like it's, it's not, it's not like here. It's in Sweden. They got something great in the water. Everyone's taking, <laughs> everyone's taking care of everyone's gorgeous and everyone's down to get down, which is nice. So I come back. It was what I needed. I come back. I'm like, this I have and, right. what, and what year was this for reference? This for is reference. right before 2000. Oh yeah, 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 that's right. That's important. There's an important shift. Right, yeah. right before yeah. 2000. So, I mean, I came back. I was a whole new man. I was world traveled. Yeah. You know, I was very, uh, very confident. I loved what happened. My my boy and I, we were we were close. Like we'd go to you know clubs. I'd help him 
uh, move move cars to his dealerships. He was very successful, and he was mm -hmm. always throwing a few bucks my way, and I was always working out. Yeah. So I had nothing to. I had nothing uh, to ever think anything that was uh, was 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 not right. Right. Well, I, I eventually quit my job at the gym because I was working too much. Like I was filming the movie The Scorpion King over the course. Of the, that was a Rock's first yeah. first lead movie, and uh, I you was, were you were a stunt guy. I was stunning on that. Yeah. I was stunning on that, and this I was working over, on that movie over the course of a year and a half, and. I was work, and then I worked on. A, I was working on Dude Where's My Car. I was I was recurring on all these different uh, TV shows and and jobs were like I was literally able to pay my my living my 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 expenses with acting and stunt jobs. Yeah. So I was a working stunt actor. Um, Congrats, by the way, to well, that to that moment in your life. No, it was great. I had yeah. every I had everything going for me. I was yeah. I, I was in the room for all the big shows. I was in the same room. I went and screen tested for a '70s show. Were, uh, were you Sean William Scott's devil? No, no see, you're gonna laugh about this. Um, I screen tested and booked the movie American Pie as Steve Stifler. Now, when I got on set, oh, uh, actually, I, 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 I can see it. I got, I got, yeah. I got on set and I went to wardrobe fitting, and then I went walking through um, the house to the producers while they were filming the because the, the the character was just a supporting role. Uh, the producers looked at me and said, "All right, thanks." And then that night, I got a call from my agent to go, Eric. They decided they're going to go a different route. And I go, what? And my, this is my agent. I don't know if she was just being nice yeah. to me. She says, they said that you didn't look goofy enough. I was like, what? Like, I don't know if that's true or whatnot, but <laughs> she's trying to make me sound sound happy. So I got paid for a week of work I never got. And then his career went and just fucking ballooned. Yeah, and damn. It, it was just nuts. But it, the, um, Well, hey, look, look. Look what happens next in your store. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I was well. well I, I screen tested for all these shows. I mean, I was screen tested for that '70s show. Um, it came down to me, Josh Hartnett, and one other for the Sofia Coppola movie *Virgin Suicides*. That's oh, wow. that that catapulted yeah. his career. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I was in the room with all these guys who yeah. were, who would go on to do amazing things. Uh, I screen tested for *Varsity Blues*. I mean, I was I was I was right there, and that's why I was getting all the the guest stars and the reoccurrence and. And I was uh, I was doing good. I was doing really good, but I wasn't appreciative of anything that was happening because you always want bigger and better. Yeah, it's of just, course. You know, you always want bigger and better. You're never, you know, content with what you have. That's just the way we are. Um, well, then two nine like nine eleven happens. No one wants to go on a trip, and and these trips were always being offered to me every month. Every month, but I couldn't go because I was working. Yeah. But I wanted to stay, I wanted to keep this opportunity open, so I was encouraging it to everyone I knew, my friends, my family, my brothers, my mother. You know, that's how that's how I thought. I thought I thought this this was just awesome. Right, I, easy money, free trip or paid trip. Yeah. Oh, because so, so I this would this would uh, so after December or sorry after nine eleven, um, my brother at the time he, uh, he he wanted to go on a trip because you know that he wanted to get eight hundred bucks for him. Eight hundred bucks would have been a lot of money. And so he accepted a, accepted a trip. I put him in touch with Ray, and uh, ten days before he's supposed to go on this trip, um, Ray calls me and goes, "Hey, your brother says he's not going." I'm like, "What are you talking about?" He's, he says, "You have to talk to him. He's not. He's not giving me. It doesn't make sense. He's not giving me because here my brother was like really adamant about going." So I call my brother up and I and I and I ask him what's going on. He says, "Yeah, I'm not going." He doesn't even just he doesn't explain why. I'm like, "Peter, what are you making me look like an asshole? Why, why, aren't, right. you, why aren't you going?" He says, well, because it's not to, to Turkey. I go, what are you talking about? Of course it's the Turkey. He goes, no, it's not, Eric. It's to Pakistan. I go, what the fuck? <laughs> See, I, I've been vouching for Turkey and how great of a place it is. Yeah. 
but I can't vouch for Pakistan because I've never been to Pakistan. And not right after 9-11. And then who the fuck wants to go to Pakistan? <laughs> and so my friend, my friend uh, Ray, I call him up. I'm like, what's this shit that's going to Pakistan? He's like, look, I'm getting a really good deal. I'm like, good, then you can FedEx it back then if yeah, you're getting like, such a great deal. Yeah. You know, and he says, he says, uh, Eric, your brother will be safe over there. I go, how will I be safe? Over, how will he be safe over there? They're bombing towers over here. <laughs> right. He says, the war is in Afghanistan right now. I'm like, that's like saying Vegas and East L.A. It's, you know, it's, there's not, it's not that far from each other. Right. Um, so he goes, like, my, my friend Ray was a, was a great salesman for sure. And he made me feel guilty that I, I vouched for my brother and that he was going to lose all this money. And I felt guilty. I felt responsible. And even though I had no time whatsoever, I ended up taking the trip. I, stu- I, t- I didn't want to leave my friend hanging. And uh, I tell everyone I'm glad I did because uh, had this happened to my brother because of me or somebody else I had encouraged this trip to because of me, I know for a fact I would have felt just ridiculously awful. And I know they wouldn't have gotten through it. Yeah, I don't I don't know if they would have uh, based on what I know about your story. It doesn't seem like anyone would have just made it through. So, okay, so you took the trip to Afghanistan. I'm nope. oh, sorry, Pakistan, pa- Pakistan, Pakistan, Pakistan. My bad, my bad. Took the trip to Just pa- check in to see if you were listening. Took the trip to Pakistan. Uh... And uh, then all all hell breaks loose. Uh, they, there's uh, you know two documentaries about my life now because of it. Um, one's called Locked Up Abroad. I tell everyone don't watch that one. Locked Up Abroad. All they did was take all the exciting stuff and pack it in uh, to a 48 minute episode, and they left out all the details. And unfortunately for me, is is it's a very popular show, so people who fill in the gaps on their own end up absolutely loving it or hating it mm-hmm. and i got a lot of haters who watch the show and are like you're a little bitch you're a fucking liar mm. none of this shit happened you're you know right. you're sucking dick for rice every day and i was like not every day <laughs> um and uh you know but but people are but just then, people right. everyone's seven feet tall on the internet yeah. So I was getting death threats weekly and like but like I, why I, like why would why would anyone care about like like that is a very good question. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I'm I'm, I'm curious. I'm curious if you why like, do people on the internet care so much to reach out to people they don't know and harass them? Like like when they've obviously gone through <laughs> like like when they no, and I'm not. It's not like on you. It's like I, to me, it's like and this is again. You asked me why I'm doing this podcast. It's like why do people make it their business to like go out of their way to like hey. You had it rough, but you are you. You're not I, tough about it, and it's like, well, what are you talking about? I, well, you know? I, I have a scenario. I have a theory here. It's because they are fucking losers. <laughs> but but the real yeah. but but everyone. I, th- I think yeah. I, the real reason was is because everyone likes to put themselves in a situation like how they would handle it, and the average person would not handle the th- the same the, uh, a situation the way I would handle it. That's for sure. Like most people would just cry in a corner and, and pray to whatever you know to to whomever might be listening. That's how that's that's my theory. And most people haven't been run over by a bus. Most people haven't been uh, experienced the kind of pain I have. Most people you know would rather sleep in than get up early and go to the gym. Most right. you know, right. So I do want to. So first of all, because I don't think we mentioned it, three years in Pakistan is the uh, the Eric Ade story. The, right? the, the, the name of the documentary people should absolutely watch is called Three Years in Pakistan: The Eric Ade Story. It's free on Amazon Prime. Uh, they can get it on iTunes. It's on about thirty different streaming platforms. It's not on Netflix, but they can watch it for free on Amazon Prime or you know rent it on YouTube Red or on demand. You know, there's just look yeah. it up. Three years in Pakistan, the Eric Day story. Yeah, um, and cool. So, but I don't want to. We're not. We're not quite done just yet. I, I do want to talk. So, so I guess the big fear of and why you're you're 
past girlfriend was not into it was they were worried that you weren't just bringing in leather goods, right? Uh, no, actually, we thought the leather goods was was bad enough. They never thought drugs. They thought leather goods. They never thought drugs. Like everyone thought, I thought that was bad enough because it was illegal to bring in stuff without okay. declaring it. That gotcha. was the whole point. Gotcha. You're bringing in expensive leather uh, goods and claiming it as your own to beat the import tax. Mm -hmm. And the way we were uh, pitched this was that there's a 55% import tax. And if you're bringing in uh, dollars to $27,000 worth of goods, then you'd have to pay, you know, $14,000, dollars $16,000. Right. So by claiming it as your own, you get a free trip, you get some spending money, um, you get to see the world, and he saves a lot of money. Yeah. And so it, it made perfect sense. And I've come to since understand that drug smugglers are fucking shameless. Though If they can get you to import their products for them and not tell you about it, they save a lot of money because you're not in on it. And also they figure you won't draw suspicion to yourself because you don't know you're being used to do anything illegal. It makes absolute sense. And it happens all the time. Before I went to jail, I thought, if you're in jail, you must be a bad person. Now I believe a lot of people were in jail for shit they didn't do. I 100% believe that. Even in our own system... Um, people will plead to lesser charges, even though they had nothing to do with it, just because they don't want to risk losing and suffer the consequences. And that's in our own system, which you would think is somewhat educational right. or, 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 or yeah. educated. Yeah. No, I mean, for sure. And and I think, again, I, I know that for respect for your story in the documentary, I don't want to get into too many details. What I, what I would like to say, though, um, is, you know, just so they have like a little brief is Eric gets caught in the airport allegedly having more than just leather goods in his in, no, there's in, no allegedly in, I, I had it I, well I mean, yeah well i it mean it was in the suitcase right, that i was, it was hired it to bring it, back. yeah it was it was lined it was lined in the suitcase yeah. you had no idea about it and then you had no trial basically you just sent well no i went back and forth. i had a trial i went back the, the way it was everyone's like well how did you not know i mean well it was uh, 3.6 kilos of opium so so that was eight pounds roughly I mean, uh, there was clothes in there, and if right. you if you emptied the suitcase, it looks like a fucking empty suitcase. Yeah, it was so professionally hidden and sealed, and it was so thin. It was like newspaper thin. When mm -hmm. they pulled it out, that I got to see it. Right. Uh, but it was in the walls, so it was looked like insulation to me. That's that's how I understood yeah, it. Yeah. I was like, uh, what? Like, what? What? Right. The guy was like, what is this? I'm like, you're you're, you're the one holding it. Right. He's like, this is off <laughs> I'm like, yeah. Oh, why are you showing me this shit? So the thing you, I had to say, which you never want to say when you're on vacation, is uh, I need to speak with the American embassy. The guy tells me, American embassy can't help you. We're going to hang you out to 5 o'clock prayer. Now I freak out. I think I'm going to die. Well, if I'm going to die, I'm going to make my life worth something. So that day they said I tried to escape. I wasn't trying to escape. I was simply trying to find a phone. I found a phone, and my goal was to call my manager back in L.A., because he's always the like... Most, that is the most Hollywood thing I've ever heard in my life. But yes, that is amazing. <laughs> my manager is... He, he was like, Eric, if you're ever in trouble, you call me. So I'm trying to call my manager, but I can't get out of the country because like none of the... I don't... I don't yeah. None of the numbers are working and I'm... You know. Did you ever see Tropic Thunder? Tropic, yeah. It's, it's like, you know, Ben Stiller, he's out in like the middle of the jungle hey, and he calls... Matthew you know, McConaughey. Yeah, he calls Matthew McConaughey. I would have Well, if I'd known Matthew McConaughey back then, I probably would have called, called him, him too. too. Yeah. That would have been great. Um, well, wait, I heard a I heard a crazy story where um, basically Barbara Bush was the person that like saved this person. In like it, it, he was uh, he was a dancer from Maoist China, came to America, and then didn't want to go back to China. And the Chinese government was like, "If you don't come back now, you're never going to see your family again. You're never going to do this." And they were like protesting outside the embassy. And then 
I guess Barbara Brush was like a big ballet fan. They call they called her and like she managed to get him out. You know, she was the Matthew McConaughey in that story. So did your manager I mean your manager was not you didn't reach him. I never saw him again. I never saw him again. He was a great guy too. His uh his name was Richard Castleberry and his um yeah. His his wife was also one of his clients, and uh, I heard after I got uh, before I got back that she broke his heart and uh, divorced him, and he lost all mm. uh, knack for wanting to be in the business, and just uh, he moved back home, and I never saw Damn. him. I never saw him or even talked to him again. I I, I don't know what happened to that guy. Damn. Um, but, but a lot of things changed for me after well, I, yeah. I was arrested. I was a uh, I was uh, tortured for three days for information I did not have. Um, on the last day, they just wanted me to admit the drugs were mine. I never admitted anything. Uh, I thought I would be out of there in a couple of days. I was the only American uh, in this. Uh, I was the only American arrested in the country at that moment. And uh, I was taken to the biggest prison in all of Pakistan, a prison meant to house only 1,800 prisoners, but had over 6,000 there, hundreds coming and going every day. It was Ugh. overcrowded. It was uh, bug infested. Yeah, scorpions, roaches, ants, snakes, uh, mosquitoes, f- millions and millions and millions of flies, if, if not billions. Yeah, oh, uh, a lot of like feral cats. It was just you slept on the on the concrete floor, and it was so it would get so hot there. The summers are just uh, ridiculous. Like people here go, "Wow, it's hot." I go, "It's not hot here." It, it, the, the average temperature during June to August was like 127 to 137, Ugh. wet hot during monsoon season. Yeah, uh, it, it, like just talk about Ugh. talk about hell. Yeah, and here I was. <laughs> I remember the day before I went to Pakistan. I was filming uh, another episode of the Andy Dick Show. I played his psychic on the show, and it was just enough, you know, uh, just just nonsense humor. And the very uh, that night I was told, hey, you, you booked a, a guest lead on the show Oralis. And I was like, I can't take it because I'm, I, I'm going to Pakistan for my friend. And I would have gotten paid $5,000 to be on the show Oralis. But because I wanted to stay loyal to my friend, I, I you know, yeah. I turned down guaranteed money to go and go to Pakistan. <laughs> and I would lose three years of my life. But I was supposed to be there a lot longer because I was I was sentenced to. I was I was po- I was facing possible death, and I don't want to give away too much of yeah, stuff. Yeah, I want people to watch the yeah. the documentary. But uh, even over there, no matter how bad things got, I thought to myself it could be way worse. So that that's that was the part that I kind of wanted to to talk with you about because that's more about the positive uplifting is to me, and like you had sort of said earlier, and what I believe, like if I was in that situation, I mean, look, I'd like to believe that I can handle some of it. I don't know if I can handle, you know what I mean? Realistically, to me, the physical pain seems hard, but literally sleeping on concrete with bugs and, and heat like seems almost harder. You know, some, sometimes it's even that environmental, like you can't even, you almost can't quantify it. So what is it that got you through? And I'm sure there were dips in that time. Well, uh, you know what? It's funny you said you don't, before that happened, I would never have thought that I could go through something like that. Right. You know, and everyone likes to think they're tough, but then when they get actually thrown in the deep end of the pool, you know, I look at it like that. Like, you know, you know, when you go into a pool, it's cold at first, you know, it's like real cold, but you swim around for a few seconds. All of a sudden your body becomes used to it. And then the pool feels nice. We're built to adapt to our situations. We're built to adapt. I mean, I was, 
the pain from the bus accidents, you know, were so excruciating, but eventually I got used to them and I adapted to them. Pakistan at first was, you know, it was, I, I, if anyone was built for jail, it was me. I was prepared for all of it. I was prepared for everything. I was prepared for the pain that would come my way. I was prepared for the isolation. And I was in my, you know, in a bed for years and by myself for years as a kid. Um, hmm. And I was, I would say to myself, like, how lucky I was when I was in jail because everything that was thrown at me was something that I was able to handle. I was able to, I was able to learn the language. I was able to defend myself. And I was I was able to uh, adapt to prison very very easily, and to where I had a good life in prison. And you know, people respected me by the time I left. And I had, you know, I had a job. I was a teacher in jail. I would teach people their own language. I would teach them how to read and write Urdu and Arabic. Mm. Um, wow. And I I had a a motto every day. I could wake up in a bad mood, or I could you know wake up in a good mood. I, I had a mission every day. I didn't just wake up and cry. I, I would wake up, I'd go exercise. I, I'd, I'd start, you know, reading. I'd read everything I can get my hands on. I was learning the law. I became a lawyer in, in Pakistan and I, and I worked on not just my case, but I worked on several other foreigners cases and I got them out of jail. Wow. Um, I would, I would host dinner parties. I would host poker tournaments. Right. Which is now, now <laughs> something that you, that, that it, I know is big for you. If it wasn't for jail in Pakistan, I wouldn't realize how wonderful life is. I wouldn't be playing poker today probably. And I wouldn't be making a living you know, uh, the, you know, I wouldn't be thriving in a pandemic right now if it wasn't for what I learned on death row in Pakistan. <laughs> and, and it's, that's amazing to me. Um, are there, were there any specific moments where I think you were able to, I guess, solidify that mindset? You know what I mean? Like you said, like, cause I, I like, you know, I think it's a universal message for all people. Hopefully they never have to experience that. But when you wake up, that's the first decision you get to make of the day, you know, and, and then you have so many decisions throughout the day that you can decide that's going to affect the way you act, the way you feel, the way. We all, well, we all have, a, okay, things I've learned in my life, you know, and, and not just from Pakistan, just from right. every bad thing that's ever happened to me. I've had almost everything bad happen to me that could possibly happen. I've been shot at, I've been stabbed, I've, you know, I've, I've, I've had, I've had so many fucked up things happen to me in my life, but. I learned that no matter how bad it gets, it could always be worse. And something we will always have control over is how we handle it. Yeah. Always. You can wake up in a bad mood or you can wake up in a good mood. I remember when guys would be like, God damn it, we're getting potatoes again. I'd be like, hey, hey, we're getting potatoes again. You know? <laughs> right. So, so you kept your sharp lip the whole time, but but, uh, but for positive. But yeah, for positive. You yeah. have to. I would laugh yeah. at myself every fucking day in jail because I was like, man, my life sucks. This is awesome, you know. This, yeah. But it's just, it's just crazy. Like I was last week, I was filming the Andy Dick show. This, this week, I'm getting tortured in Pakistan. <laughs> oh, there, there was so much nonsense happening in jail too. Jail's like high school, but it's a great high school. Um, everyone knows everyone's business, and it's like the, you. Everyone knows when some shit happens. Like there was this little guy, who was a uh, part of. He, he was. He was. Uh, they wouldn't put me in general population because everyone kept trying to fucking kill me. Some dude put a 5,000 rupee bounty on my head, and that's worth $87 uh, at the time anyways because $1 was 60 rupees. I, yeah. don't know, I, mean, I'm sure, I don't know what it is now. And so everyone kept trying to collect this 5,000 rupee bounty on my head. Um, but everyone was so small compared to me. It was it was literally like I hopped the fence at a junior high school and just went to war on the playground. I mean, <laughs> I mean like like all there's a lot of kids. I mean, they can add, they can add up. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but even, yeah. But the, the, no one wants to be the first, second, or third uh, dipshit that comes yeah, at yeah, you. Yeah. 
Um, but eventually people started to leave me alone and I would just have fun and tell stories and jokes and, 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 and run, uh, poker games. And we, we, everyone just, most people were just trying to get to the day, but there, like, this is one fun story. This guy, he was, he was in jail for having, uh, been arrested with, um, grenades. Wow. Okay. And, uh, he, he looks like a normal guy. He looks like a little, uh, a, a dwarf, you know, like a, from the movie, the Lord of the Rings. Cause he's short and big, long beard. Okay. And, and so he goes to court, but then he comes back to back from court and he is fucked up. Like everyone beat him. You can tell when mm. someone's been in a fight because their yeah. eyes all swollen and they're all fucked up and cut up and everything. And we're like, what happened? <laughs> this dude went to court and told the judge, those aren't grenades. They're props for a movie. Pull the pin. <laughs> and this dude pulled the pin in the courtroom. And then now, now they did. <laughs> no, it's a fucked up situation because you're like, oh, the poor judge. But when you're a prisoner, fuck the judges. Those guys yeah, are the yeah. most corrupt sons of bitches yeah. out there. So your loyalties completely shift now. Yeah. Like we're oh, all, <laughs> we all want the judges to suffer. Fuck them. Well, you're, so, you got a jaw drop in the, in the, the audience back there. The, that one. the yeah. judge pulled the pin and I can just imagine that dude looking at it like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, and then taking cover right before it just blows up. Now the thing is they, that pull, is a Looney Tune they pull, moment. They pull up. <laughs> okay. Well, they just, they, they still get rid of all the power, the powder out of the, uh, the grenades. So it's like that's, that would that would have killed you. Well, they got rid of the powder out of the grenades, but the firing mechanism inside the grenade is still active. And so it's not quite as powerful as a normal grenade, but it was powerful enough to blow off the judge's complete arm. Whoa. The judge didn't die, but ever but the guard see he didn't get fucked up from that. He got fucked up from all the guards beating Jeez. his ass. <laughs> and so when he we so when he's telling us this story, me and all these Pakistanis are just rolling on the ground laughing our asses off, and he's over here like I didn't think he'd pull the pin. <laughs> he got like 15 years for that, dude. He if he just take if he just taken the best prank ever. 15 years. No, <laughs> and so every time I'd see him in prison, like hauling buckets, I'd be like, boom! Ah! That is it'd wow. Be, it'd be great. And then when there were riots in jail, like, there was this fountain that was close to the front, so it was really hot. Like I'd take advantage of the riots. I'd go and I'd sit a beach chair in the in the side of the fountain, and I'd sit in there and I put like suntan lotion on my nose, and I'd get a tan. And like other people who didn't want to fuck around with the riots, they'd be in the they're getting cooled off too. And I would root for whoever was winning. If the prisoners were winning, I'd root for them. If the guards were winning, I'd root for them. You know. <laughs> and there was this guard. His name was Nukibula. He had this really long like mustache that with the, that would twirl up. Yeah. Well, we had our own little thing. Like every time he saw me, he would do like this, like, like lip nod where his mustache would go way up and I'd get like that two fist bumps in the air. Be like, yeah. <laughs> well, so he, he's over here beating the crap out of this guy with a, with a cane. And I'm like, Nikibula. And he looks over and he does the, the lip nod. I'm like, woohoo, double fist <laughs> right in the middle of this riot. <laughs> well, finding yeah. the lighter side of, Pakistani prison. Oh, we had great yeah. times, man. We, it was so, some douchebag tied a uh, like a water bottle on the back of a cat's tail during the Dora, which is like inspection, so it's really quiet during inspection, and everyone's locked up in their prisons or in their cells, and you hear this cat just screaming, meowing as it's running up to with this bottle chasing it. <laughs> People were dicks, you know, but, but it was. It was like any kind of uh, any anything that could happen in prison. You know, people are like, "Well, well yeah, do people?" You know, all everyone ever thinks about is rape and and murder and jail. And yeah, that happens. But you know, honestly, if you're in jail and you got a uh, you got your wits about you and you and you just just the situation you keep to yourself, people won't try to fuck with you. 
and people stopped fucking with me um, after the first year, and after that, I was left alone, and I had a great life in jail. <laughs> well, if anybody could find the silver lining in a trauma, Eric Day, thank you for joining. Check out the uh, well, unless unless you got more to say to plug uh, your documentary. I do. Oh, uh, well, okay. okay. I, I know you got stories for days, yeah, but I got, but I, 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 I don't want to I don't want to give nah. away. Watch your doc. Watch the documentary, guys. All right, I'm gonna tell you right now. If you're having a bad day, you watch my documentary. You'll feel a ton better. I'm not saying it's a magic pill, but I'm telling you right now, if you Watch my documentary. It'll hope it'll hopefully help you open your eyes as to what is really important in life. And what is what is important in people's lives are things that they absolutely take for granted. Like the thing I missed the most when I was in jail. I think I missed the absolute most when it was hot and the and the and it was scorching, and I was feeling so miserable. The thing I missed the most was water. Just simple, yeah. just simple water. You know, ice is gold. Ice is gold. Being able to go and grab food from anywhere right now—that's a luxury. You know, a warm. Uh, a warm bed, a soft pillow. <laughs> Those things are, right. are great things to have, and people take it for granted. Everything around you. I, I mean, if you, if I could encourage anyone to do anything, even if you don't watch my documentary, I'd, I'd want you to practice this. Practice. Just pretend that you are in prison right now. People are like, we're in jail right now. It's the worst as ever. No, you still got food in your belly. You still got a roof over your head. You're safe. You have it good. If you make more than $2 a day, you're living better than 90% of the rest of the planet. And we don't even know that. You know, I tell you, just practice. Pretend right now that everything's taken away. What would you miss the absolute most? And if you think about it, you'll start to realize everything around you is 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 more wonderful than you could ever have imagined. You know, and people, Amen. and once you stop taking advantage of everything in your grasp, you'll start to enjoy life more. You know, I I, I got asked the other day, do you, would you rather be rich or happy? And I go, well, be happy. Being happy is priceless. Yeah, you know. I would rather be happy any day of the week and poor than rich and miserable. And and, and, and there's no reason that it can't happen. So I, I love life. I, I, I want to be happy. I wake up with a good attitude. I go to bed with a good attitude. You know, and, and it's okay to trip. It's just make sure you get back up. Amen. You know, and we always, always, always have control over how we handle a situation. So watch my documentary, Three Years in Pakistan, The Eric Day Story. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Eric Day, E R I K A U D E. You can ask me some questions as long as they're reasonable. You know, I, yeah. I don't really enjoy t- talking about details of my story all the time. That's why I got the documentaries. Don't yeah. watch Locked Up Abroad. They fucked it up. Watch Three Years in Pakistan. The um, I do story. have. I got one more question because yeah. this, I was actually thinking about this more as a filmmaker and and specifically with this this being about trauma and triumphing over it. I was watching parts of your documentary, watching you setting up the stunt or setting up the, you know, this the actual scene. Did that play a part in you kind of like grow, you know, like kind of growing out of like to me when I when I met you, well really the second time technically and we talked more about your story is like I know as a storyteller there's sometimes a need to tell a certain story. And for you, was fulfilling that need and actually being able to, like, orchestrate the events, did that have, like, an impact on you? And if so, like, can, like, like what was that like? Like, going back into a cell, having a guy playing you, getting tortured in the way that you were being tortured, you know? Well, the reason, why I, the reason why I had to get somebody else to play me was because when I did Locked Up Abroad, I, I played myself. You know, I figured, you know, I'm the only idiot to play themselves on that show. 
And that's another reason why people didn't take it seriously. So oh, okay. I wanted people to take it seriously. So we got Mark Hapka, very, yeah. a very good actor to, to play me and portray me, even though we're the same age. You know, he looks a lot younger than I do. <laughs> so he was able to, to pull it off. Um, when I did the show Locked Up Abroad and I played that and, and we did the torture scenes, it triggered something to me. And I, all this, uh, I started getting, uh, ever since then too, um, uh, where I get very dizzy. Uh, we were, when we were doing the drowning, mm-hmm. I started to get very, very, very dizzy, and they had to stop production completely. Mm. And I and I felt really bad because I couldn't I couldn't finish the day, and they took me to the hospital, but they had insurance, so the whole production got pushed three days because of it. Wow. Um, and so I didn't want to risk it again. For I didn't want to do it again. And plus, I wanted people to take it seriously, and so that's why we got somebody else. So when I organized organize and, and try to do it. Um, you know, it, it sucks. You know, what, what happened to me sucked. You know, being tortured not, you know, it's not fun. You're a grown man and you're being, you know, beat up and, and tortured and electrocuted and, and drowned. To. And it's, yeah. it's, it's not something I care to ever go through. And I hope I hope I never have to go through it again. Yeah. Um, you know, but it's something that happened. And uh, it's it's there in the documentary. I mean, I, I, a lot of bad things happen to me. And that's that's what's, you know, yeah. that's why we shared it. People, people want to know about bad things in other people's lives so that they can hopefully appreciate their own lives more. And, and a lot of bad things have happened to me in my life. So at least all the bad stuff, at least sharing all the bad things that have happened to me hopefully helps everyone else get through their own lives a little bit easier. Amen. Well, thank you for doing it. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Traumatically Triumphant. Check out Eric Ade and the three years in Pakistan, the Eric Ade story on Amazon Prime. And thank you again to Pink Cloud Studios, whether you are a pop star or a podcast host looking to come up in the world, this is the place to do it. Thank you again. See you next time.